who couldn't make it today because they've had to work or whatever. Um, and I wanted to start actually, there's a lot of people private message me on LEV Central on LinkedIn um, questions that they're not brave enough to ask the wider audience. So I just wanted to put some questions out there first. So question A, if I follow the BOHS Breathe Freely selector tool and a different type of LEV is given in the results to the one my client has, should I be failing the existing LEV plant as it doesn't match the selector? That's a really good one, Louise, because I've been looking at that recently on training courses. Um, and I am finding that there's a lot of welding systems out there that are maybe not to the benchmark. And it's kind of where do you stand? Because at the end of the day, in terms of responsibilities, it's the client's responsibility to ensure that there's an overall risk assessment. And it might yes. be that a downdraft booth is the most ideal situation, but they might have something like on tool extraction as well as um, hoods to protect them. At the end of the day, it's is the person protected. So I find it very difficult going on client sites and um, testing something like a welding system, especially if it's capture hood, because it's kind of, well, this isn't benchmarked for a welding process. And then we're in the situation there. Can we pass it if it's not benchmarked? Well, the only way I could feel comfortable passing it is if I can see they've got a written down risk assessment that's also got additional controls and the match what's in the guidance. So WL3 is really good because it goes through like how often do you use it and, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, if you can't get that information off the client as a tester, that's a really tough one. I don't know what other people think. I'm kind of, I'm of the um, thoughts when I do a test for this kind of situation, then I can only give information on how well that system works. So if it's a capture and maybe a portable capture welding hood, I can report, yeah, it's re in really good condition. This is the capture distance that it needs to work in. The filters are in good condition. It's okay. However, depending on your risk assessment and your process, you'll also need additional controls. So I can't actually give them a pass. I can only give them a sort of conditional, yes, this will work within a certain distance with other controls in place. So for me, it's a really tough one because I don't feel that you can yes or no it without that risk assessment. That's a very good point, actually. Yeah, Anybody so else have any thoughts? The LEV system is only you know, part of a, a, a suite of controls. Um, and uh, it can be a mixture of LEV and RPE. I certainly wouldn't fail something because it, it doesn't meet the criteria of the selection tool. But um, a lot of the places we work are offshore and large construction and where there's no way a downdraft bench can uh, can be used. And an extraction arm certainly is not perfect, but it combined with RPE and other sorts of ventilation, then it's obviously trying to get exposure down to the uh, a reasonable level. So, you know, it's a. I certainly wouldn't fail something because it's not a it's not a 
a downdraft bench, as the selector tool would say. But of course, a downdraft bench will uh, it will only be the answer if it's if it's small to medium sized parts, I suppose, on the selector tool. Yeah, and not large plates either. Yeah. Okay, another no, question it's, that it's came in this morning. Sorry. Sorry, it's the same with the, I suppose, the one metre per second and the 0.5 metres per second. Uh, it's very, very difficult to explain to a welder when they can actually see all the smoke or all the weld fume going into the hood that, you know, from a distance of, say, 300 mil, that you have to position that hood to 150 mil. Um, I know there was discussions recently on LinkedIn regarding capture distance uh, and also I find it's a very, very difficult argument to, to make on site when they, they can see with the hood being positioned at a certain distance it's taking all the fume away. So that's, a, I suppose, another, another side to it. Yeah, and that was actually a question that was emailed half hour before this um, meeting actually. It says everyone's doing Fletcher's on Bill's Oxalate app for capture distances but I've always done smoke and tape measure minus 50 mil. The capture distance via Fletcher's is much less with smoke and I follow the crowd, but how do I phase Fletcher's in to replace previous smoke assessments? Because um, I'm getting backlash from clients. Mm -hmm. I got I get dragged back onto site recently because I relabeled hoods that we had previously put on a, a label. I, I shortened the capture distance uh, for one metre per second and was was dragged up back up to a site in the northeast to, to face questioning. It's a, it's a difficult thing, yes. People have to understand how Fletcher's is calculated and, and how it's used. And Bill, you probably had to give more on this than I can. Um, but Fletcher's is, is very theoretical and has the hood angled at a horizontal position. Whereas a lot of the time on welding fume, the hood is either above or angled at um, 45 degrees and above. So you get a much greater capture, what appears to be a capture distance, because the, the hot boil fume is rising into the capture zone and then it's taken away. So you're not comparing apples with apples. I suppose okay, the important so, thing as well is watching, yeah. watching the welders do the weld as part of your, your qualitative assessments is are they positioning it somewhere near? Because that's half the battle, isn't it? Half the, the welders don't use the hoods properly. Louise, if we can go back to the beginning of that question. The um, oh, yeah. uh, smoke in still air conditions will be controlled down to 0.2 meters per second. I've run it experimentally several times. So in complete still air conditions, it I'll put to one side the very good point Adrian makes about the positioning of the hood, but smoke will be controlled down to 0.2 in still air conditions. I don't know, even given my elderly years, I don't know what the origin of the 0.5 to 1 meter per second, but it clearly has a built-in safety margin that they have decided at some stage, which predates me, that 0.5 was the minimum and 1 was the obviously the upper end of the range. Um, now that then becomes a problem when you do a pure smoke test and you show that it goes out to 300 mil, you run it through Fletcher and it says 200 mil and you end up putting a sticker on it 200 mil and the client's not terribly happy because they could clearly see the smoke going uh, control going much further. So that's one point we'd need to explain to the client that the smoke, yes, that's a uh, 
Um, that's the test, but it's, it's showing 0.2 in still air. Um, I think what happens is that in many situations, welding hoods are used as mongrel hoods. They're kind of part capture, part receiving hood in the sense that they're they're at a bit of an angle. So they're getting the buoyancy from the hot fume as well. So in reality, they do perform better than full sideways on, which then leads to, leads to another question that I know has been put up by a number of people, which is how do you test a welding hood? Do you test it as you found it? But then that afternoon, the welder may turn it sideways on rather than having it um, at an angle overhead. Or do we have to standardize so that we've got um, uh, a reference to work to each time we come in? And uh, that's not really been discussed widely, I don't think. Anyway, that's my input on the smoke. Um, discussions with the guys at HSC have shown that they would prefer that you use something like Fletcher to calculate it, but then to prove it by using smoke, that it goes at least to the Fletcher distance that 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 it produced, um, and that's to prove that there's no extraneous drafts, air currents, and whatnot pushing it away before it gets to that uh, position. So that, as I understand it, is the the current view on testing welding hoods. But yeah, I mean, for many many years, Louise, I did it by releasing smoke and coming back 50 mil. Yeah, uh, I was I'll the same. I'll be quiet now. I don't want to get round it by telling the customers that the regulations have changed. They never question what the regulations are, or they haven't to date touch wood. Um, and they seem to be satisfied with that. I wouldn't I wouldn't use the word regulations because you can get caught out with that one, Louise. I would use um, expectations or protocols or standards, but I wouldn't use the word regulations. You're going to get caught by that one. Yeah, I, I think um, in terms of uh, what to say to the customer, what I've found useful is just to say more recent research has shown that this is the most accurate method. Now, um, what you're putting on the hood is the safest scenario. And my, my answer back to them would be because I feel really uncomfortable with LEV testing without sampling data because I can't say whether someone's getting exposed just by looking. Um, you, you can usually tell if there's a problem, but how do I know that the result is reasonably practicable or are they not exposed at all? That's not something I could say without some um, quantitative data. And quite often customers don't want to pay for sampling as well as the LEB test. Now, I don't have a choice in that. Um, I can offer it, but if they pay for it or not, that's, that's up to them. So my only um, advice is to them to say, this is the current methods that we use. Based on um, research data, it's the safest. And if you, it's quite possible it might work further away, but you would need to use sampling data to prove it. So if you want to work within 300 mil, then feel free to get some sampling done of the, on the person when they're doing normal tasks and just see how they're getting exposed at that distance. Now you may be able to find that actually 300 mil is a safe distance. Personally from experience of actually watching the welding process and I use this example in training every time when we talk about Fletchers. I did some LEV testing on a big welding site and there was one particular capture hood. 
in one of these booths, you know, where there's just a tiny little booth with a workbench and a curtain behind them. And I used to do my testing over lunch when they're all on the dinner, so I'm not interfering with the job. And I did my testing. I had one of those um, big um, concept, is it, or the heat soup smoke machines. And I released it in front of me. I stood as if I was the worker and I released it over the full bench and it was absolutely whizzing up the hood. And I'm thinking, this hood's got some good flow on it. It's great. And then after my testing, what I normally do is walk around and watch all the processes. So I'm walking towards this enclosure and out of the top of it, I can see fumes. And then I'm starting to panic, thinking, oops, I've turned it off and not turned it back on for the guy over lunchtime. So there's me panicking, running up there to say, I may have just turned your extraction off. Turned out it was actually on. And his welding fumes were coming out the top of the booth. So although it was great with smoke, I think those values 0.5 to 1 are going to be realistic. And surely they've been put in that guidance document for a reason. More than likely some tech, I don't know the background behind where those figures came from, but more than likely it's been some studies. And as Bill says, smoke will get captured at 0.2 metres per second, which I saw in that example. And then once he starts welding, it was actually evading the hood and going straight up out the top of the booth. So that, that's that's the only advice I can give. And to explain that to a client, just to say in the past, it's been done in good faith with smoke testing, but research has shown that smoke gets captured different to welding fume. And we're going on the guidance on current research. I don't know what others think or their experiences. Is that just because it's a different density to smoke? Yeah, yeah, so they, they Fume has lots of particles in it, and it's very dense, and it will um, it will act in where, in air in a different way to smoke wood. So, John Saunders at the HSE, and I don't know if John's on this call or not, um, said at the last LEV conference last year, was it last year or year before? Um, 0.5 to one was an indicative number um, put out there back in the think the 70s or the 60s. Been around for a long long time as a sort of guidance number and it's no hard fast sort of science behind it but i think we're trying to pin this down to an exact sort of number five to one or whatever you want to say when the real world isn't like that you, we're talking about welding there's lots of different types of welding different processes at different angles different um size rods how much smoke they produce we've got to test what's in front of us and, and 0.5 to 1 may not be good enough. You, you may need more. It's about control, isn't it? Is it controlling or not? Um, you might be getting one meter a second. It might be 200 mil from the hood. If it's still not controlling, it's not controlling. So we it's need to be looking above the numbers and, and actually testing what we're seeing. Um, what do numbers do? We just record them. Just because you've got one meter a second doesn't mean you've got control. It's just something we can record and refer back to next year and the year after. Yeah. So I, I, I really wouldn't get too hurt on, on what the number tells us. Yes, the working zone is important and people need to know that so they know they're working in the right in the right place. But the actual <coughs> 0.5 to 1, to me, sorry, it's, it's just a number. You yeah. Could, I, could I draw some comparisons here, Adrian? We, we, at the moment, um, we use some devices in laboratories that are very similar to the welding hoods. 
there are articulated extract arms and there's a new there's a new standard that's going to be coming out for public comment very soon and what i would like is everyone that's in on this call uh, to drop me an email so that I can send them a copy of this document when it comes out to public inquiry. Because in this document, there is a type test for an articulated arm, which is, for all intents and purposes, the same as a welding arm. It has the same configurations. It works on the same principles. But in this test, what, what the um, standard is prescribing is that the uh, evaluation will be made on velocity to start with, where they will just move away from the capture device uh, in 20 millimeter increments until a velocity of 0.4 meters per second is no longer obtained, then they will, they will call that the capture zone. But then they're also having a test whereby they have a small sensor that's linked to a gas analyzer. The sensor is placed inside the duct arm of the capture device they then release a known quantity of a particulate gas uh, underneath the capture arm, and then they measure inside the duct how much of that gas is being collected by that capture device and sending into the arm. They have an additional um, part to the test that they have a, a, um, a 400 wide millimeter wide by 1.9 meter high plate that's on a rolling table that moves across the front of the capture device while it's performing. So to cause some sort of disturbance. Now, this is only, what I'm trying to get back to here, this is only recorded in this draft standard at the moment as a type test for manufacturers to perform. And what I'm trying to say is how do we transfer the test to the as-used application? And we're coming back to the same problem that I think you're all finding here with the welding devices, in that we can only ever record the numbers. Yeah, there's, there's I think this goes. This, this has to be thrown back at the manufacturers. If they're bringing these devices to the market, they know there's a statutory obligation to have them tested, and as part of their O and M and their using user manuals, they should be telling us how they should be tested. Um, but we're not seeing it. You know, we're, we're not we're, we're seeing it across the board in in the construction industry with these new saws and tools coming out with, with extraction devices on there. There's no way of testing some of them um, apart from well, doing a visual assessment. Uh, well, and well, and these arms are the same, Melvin. They, they, the manufacturers should be saying, this is what we do in the, in the laboratory. This is what works. Now, when you test it on site, you need to do this. I agree. But since the Grenfell inquiry and Dame Judy Packett's work, the, the UK government has now um, instigated a new code of practice that they hopefully are going to be launching, where they're placing a greater emphasis on the way manufacturers report information and the efficacy that that information has to have and um, how it's transferred to the user, not just to place it in a manual that's stuck in a box and sent out. They're trying to move it forward in that the information is made more widely available, but also is more practical. The, the, the thing I struggle with particularly is that manufacturers perform type tests in such intrinsically perfect conditions that, you know, even a cardboard box with a hairdryer on would pass the test. I you know, agree. If you're going to test an, an articulated arm in a room where 
the thermal air conditions are below 0.05 meters per second, there is going to be no challenge. I mean, just somebody with sedentary breathing can breathe at nine meters a second if, <laughs> if they're bending over. So the way they perform these tests, and, and this is where, for me, the, the problem lies. It, it's great to have a manufacturer's type test because it does allow people to evaluate a range of products. But you cannot use that. You cannot use that to, to make sure your guys are safe on site. Else? Yes, I, I agree there, uh, Melvin, with you entirely. I think type testing can, can and should be done by the manufacturers to give an indication. Adrian's right. You haven't right. got anything else. They seem to be... So nobody's um, walked off with anything. Oh, very good. Yeah, I, I think manufacturers are not giving the information that one would expect. Um, there should be some indication of efficacy of their systems. Um, even a simple graph that says this is the size of the hood. Now, if you now achieve there's nothing under there. If you achieve a Can't face, get under there. I've got somebody's microphone cutting it and breaking in. Um, it, it, you know, you can easily do a graph and a chart um, and you can talk about what distance they reckon their hoods would would get by way of capture distance in good still air conditions but i think the point is once we get on site then we're in a dynamic situation it's the way the welders are working the size of the the weld the type of welding that's been undertaken the drafts or the the ambient conditions uh, and one of the questions to you all would be if you went along and you did some testing and Adrian's quite right, he says, you know, 0.5 to 1 meter per second is an indication and you mustn't just get hung up only on that. And you go along and you find that the guys are working at the distance that Fletcher says and at that distance it should be achieving 0.9 meters per second or something like that. And there is visible plume escaping. What do you do? Visible plume escaping. Never mind what face velocities and capture velocities. You go along, you observe the welder operating, and you see visible plume escaping. What's your views on that? My feel originally would be that it was a fail. The captor would fail to capture all the fume. But the recent uh, information have been given through training says that the HSE are looking at more controls put in place. So RPE being used, general ventilation being utilised, which I'm a little bit confused about now if I'm being completely honest, because when first did P602 and 601, that, initial, that was a, classed as a fail, where it seems to be doing a bit of a U-turn now. Yeah, I don't so. think it's doing a U-turn, Craig. I think it's still a fail if it's not being used. What we are assessing is that they have adequate control. Um, and if that includes the use of uh, other control measures, such as RPE and, and general ventilation, then then that can still be a pass. The whole control solution is a pass. Um, the LEV may be a fail on its own, but the, but the bottom line is the the client has to do a risk assessment and the risk assessment income uh, takes into account all control measures um you can't just especially welding um you can't just pin it all on 
the LEV to provide adequate controls, it never will. You know, the HSE say that on tool extraction is the best form and it only does 90%. Well, how about the other 10%? Uh, so that you, you've got to have secondary controls in place and it's the whole control solution, not just the one element. So if, if the LEV is there and it's not being used correctly, i.e. the hoods aren't positioned, personally, I would fail it. Um, and I'd fail it not on the grounds that the LEV is not working, but because they're not providing suitable user training to position the hoods. But if they have a risk assessment which says they have other control measures to, to prove otherwise, then it's, the client can still carry on and do the, the task, do the work, um, because they they have the you know they have the other controls to to ensure their their exposures are, are to an acceptable level. See, Adrian, we would we would probably take a softer view and say it's a pass, but we'll give you less. We'll give you three months to get your instruction information supervision in place, um, and check it again in three months. If at that three month period or or whatever period we chose. They weren't then complying and it was still tucked away in the corner then yes it would be a fail um i think it comes back to working with clients as well it's it's you know you've got to work with them to a certain degree and yes if they're not using it consistently then it would be a fail but i think if you go in and it's just on if they're all shoved in the corner clearly not used then yes that's an issue but if you take the example of the photograph you put on lev central that they're using them just not as well as they could be then maybe we take a softer view and i think this is the problem we've got is the inconsistency and that room for maneuver so some companies will go in and fail it some will go in and pass it and this is what the clients are seeing and this is the frustration the clients are having is is this this inconsistency amongst the testing with that the problem is you're getting a lot of companies who are going in and are failing this um, and charging x amounts of money and the the view from a customer's point of view is that you're always going to find someone who will do a job cheaper who will pass that system and that's another thing that's concerning that there are people out in the industry who with us not being on the same level are aiming to be on the same level we're always going to have an issue what i would like to track back on a little bit what bill raised in when, when bill was saying that what do you do if if you observe that velocities may be compliant or um, you, you may have the right conditions, but you, you do note that the fume is being moved around that isn't being captured. What do you do? I, I, I like to think that as testers, we can try and be a, a bit interactive with the user and perhaps suggest the user changes the way he works with this device. So if we're testing it and we're finding that something isn't quite right, we should be suggesting, well, have you thought about changing this process or using this in a slightly different way? Or, you know, I, I really worry slightly. Um, if, if I can use an, uh, a similarity, when I do testing on fume cupboards, a lot of the time there are fume cupboards that fail the test. And what I should do is put a sticker on that says this fume cupboard's failed, do not use. But what I try to do is look at how they're using the fume cupboard. And I've been able to help users by saying move everything back from your sash line a minimum of 150 millimetres. Try to lift things up off your work surface by a minimum of 25, 30 millimetres. And when they've done that, the fume cover that I've just tested that didn't, that didn't pass the, um, the, the flow rates and the containment values now works. Not because I've done anything with the air volume flow or I've changed the design of the fume cupboard. All I've done is interacted with the user to try and assist them 
in understanding. And I think one of the big problems we have, all of us, is that we don't always get the chance to talk to users before they get the equipment to use. It's normally wheeled into them. Somebody says, here's your new piece of welding protection kit. You plug it on there, you move it across and you carry on. I feel a lot of this is education. I think you're right, Melvin. I think a lot of the problems with the industry is education um, from the employers all the way through to, to testers. Um, I, I do think, and, and knowing a lot of the people on this call, that the, a lot of us on this call do educate people when we are testing and do go through those explanations and try and improve um, uh, the working practices we come across. But you're right, there are an awful lot out there who just test what they're, what's in front of them and, and, and leave site um, as quick as possible. Uh, but yeah, uh, I mean, Bill and I and Mark and Louise, we've all had that conversation in the past about what's the issue with the industry and it does boil down to education. Yeah, I've, I've had very similar views to what Melvin was saying about fume cupboards. Um, you know, the, one the site that I'm permanently based at, um, you know, it's, it's a pharmaceutical site and it's just full of fume cupboards around the site. Uh, and pretty much exactly what Melvin was saying, it, it comes down to the users or, you know, lab owners that they're not using the fume cupboards correctly, they're, they're poorly loaded, there's too much too much equipment in there or it's too bulky or it's right up to the face of the sash um, or, you know, they're, they're not raising, putting things on platforms to, to create better airflow. Um, and again, it just comes down to not not having an understanding of, of what the impact is of, of that equipment and the poor loading and putting them at risk. I think so, one of the one of the issues that we have in the industry as a whole is that um, you can have LEV testers that have gone through the P series and then you can have people that have more of an occupational hygiene background that are also doing LEV testing. And I think if you're expecting LEV testers to um, have that more occupational hygiene view, then that's something that should be explicit across the uh, across the um, sector. Personally, I don't think it's um, particularly at the moment that that we should expect that uh, LEV testers are coming in and training on an engineering control, and as they get more experienced they will get and they will pick up information, but they're not occupational hygienists. And I think we can provide a good service by offering more of that occupational hygiene advice and support, but that's not really what an LEV test is, I don't think anyway. So I think that that's sometimes where I get a bit um, concerned is, you know, how far are we expected to go into that area? Um, I think it's it's great for us, for those of us that can. But if we're trying to develop a, a sector and standardise training and decide on, on on what level people should be at, where how far do you go with the occupational hygiene side and understanding yeah. the hazards and how they're using the system and these extra bits that we, you know, we might do, but the rest of the industry aren't doing. But I think that's the critical bit though. And I think that's the failing that we're seeing on so many of these systems is the right at the start. It's the cost risk assessment. What is the process and the substance under control? Mm -hmm. And if the tester doesn't understand that, 
then you're, you're failing right from the start. And I think from what we see and the experience I've got over the years of testing, that's the critical failure for us. It's that lack of understanding. Everything stems from that. So if you don't understand what the substance is and how it's performed, how, it's, how it should be controlled, how can you determine whether it's controlling or not? So, yeah, Mark, Mark is correct. I mean, the, the, the purpose of the COSH regs is to look at the risk assessment as your first major step. And the risk assessment says, do we need to control those risks further? And then you move to Regulation 7, which says you put in controls. Now, if you look at the definition section at the beginning of the uh, COSH regulations, the controls are obviously the substances, but the um, engineering controls such as LEV, but also administrative controls and things like supervision uh, and training and so on. So when we say, is the control satisfactory? in that it's bringing the risk to an acceptable level. The word control means the envelope, the suite of controls. And there is a worry that I have, is that sometimes maybe we look at the LEV and we say, that is the control, but it isn't. It's all the other things as well. But that then causes a problem for the tester. Is the tester, which he isn't, um, supposed to be testing the controls, control, envelope, or the element of the control that he's physically looking at, LEV, because the LEV may be doing its job to the best of its ability. That was what I was trying to allude to. The LEV can be doing the, the, the best you can expect from it, but the emissions, the process are not being controlled adequately. Mm -hmm. And that's where Mark is right. You know, if you get visible emission, visible plume that's not being controlled, that becomes then an issue of the risk assessment. How significant is that emission that is visibly bypassing? Is it significant or is it not? And I've, uh, I've, I've come back over the years to saying we fundamentally need to look at the risk and the risk assessment and the elements of it. But that's probably beyond the scope of what we do under Reg 9. We do under Reg 9 um, the LEV testing which to some extent will be how the people are using it. As we know, paragraph 186 says that we're supposed to ask about occupational hygiene monitoring. So do we look at a welding hood and say, hmm, there is some fume escaping. The client brackets unusually have some good occupational hygiene reports which show it's insignificant. The actual um, welder's exposures were less than a tenth of the workplace exposure limit for the individual components and so on. I I reckon you could then say, well, that's okay. But if there is no occupational hygiene data, then we're straying, as Catherine said, into occupational hygiene, pure and simple territory. Should we be saying there was visible control? Uh, and I'm not I'm not going to come down on one side or the other, but maybe we should say uh, there's visible emissions not being controlled until such times as a review of the risk assessment has been undertaken, including hygiene monitoring, we can't say why that, whether that's significant or not and whether your control envelope is working or do we say something else? But I do think it is back to fundamental risk assessments um, to determine whether the envelope of control is adequate or not and what it should contain and the key points in it one of which, of course, will be supervision and training. 
As an LEV tester, you can only recommend that back to the client, though, unless you are from an occupational hygiene company as well, and you can offer those other services. Indeed. So it would be a, would be a point of then on the report stating the recommendations of a risk assessment, further and further work on the other controls to see and, and sampling. Um, it, it's it's difficult to know where to leave it. I think sometimes when you when you're doing an LEV report, how far do you go? And you know we want to do a good job, but we also need to earn money, and it, it sometimes is frustrating. Um, we tend to use our covering letter. Um, we tend to use our covering letter to try and explain a bit further why they need to do more. You know, it's not just about um, spending more money. It's about the long term health effects. Mm -hmm. um, so I tend to go on a bit in the in the um, covering letter, just in addition to the report, to try and help them understand. I think we How do have to do more occupational hygiene element to the work. Not saying LEV assessors um, need to be hygienists, but there is clearly an overlap there. And uh, I think on the P six hundred one courses, and there's there's far too many people who get six hundred one and run run out and start doing testing work. Um, it doesn't cover enough of the occupational hygiene element. Uh, it clearly, you know, it is an issue. It, it needs to be linked. And I think in time, um, LEV test reports should have some form of air monitoring on them. Maybe not full personal exposure monitoring, but certainly handheld equipment um, monitoring to see what is escaping from hoods, potentially background readings of what's in the air. Uh, because at the moment, you know, it's it's not good enough. It's better it's than old, 10 years ago. It's the old chestnut, Adrian, isn't it? That um, a pure occupational hygienist may not be competent to do LEV testing. Very a pure true. LEV engineer may not be competent to do LEV testing. It does require knowledge of both. It, it's, it's this overlap, the Venn diagram overlap. And I've seen so many people who say they're OCK hygienists and they've got certificate in OCK hygienists on and the reports are terrible. I've seen some very good physical installation engineers do LEV testing and the reports are awful. So it doesn't guarantee you if you're an OCK hygiene you can do it or if an LEV engineer you can do it. It does definitely require understanding of the OCK hygiene elements yeah. and a, the engineering elements. There's a specialist role which Bill, you and I discussed many years ago, in the middle there somewhere, mm. the LEV assessor, which understands the engineering, understands the OCK hygiene, and does the assessments of the LEV and the control it gives. And, and part of that is considering the risk assessment, maybe helping the client to update their risk assessment, um, and looking at all controls, not just the LEV. Whether you then have to recommend they bring in specialists to do air monitoring or other types of um, measurements, then so be it. How often would you expect occupational hygiene monitoring to be to be taken taken out? Depends on the results you're getting. Necessary. Yeah, it depends what you've got. What you know, you you may not need to do any any air sampling. Uh, you, just lamp or smoke tests. You know, they may be sufficient. Depends what the substance is, um, the usage. The, the, that's a little bit of a how long's a bit of string question, but yeah, it would depend for us on what concentrations you're getting in air, um, and that'll determine how often, how frequent. Back to your risk assessment. If, if I suspect there's a lack of control, 
then I would recommend the undertake air monitoring to prove prove what is in the air. I think um, we, we tend to do this quite a lot when we get together is everybody's got absolutely valid points, but we still keep trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. And everybody's saying exactly the same things and we kind of go around in circles. It's kind of how do we look at realistically what we've got and what can we do? Because to me, there's kind of there's various elements to the test and realistic, realistically um, and just working with some of the companies that are doing LEV testing at the moment is if they're going out to do a 70 pound job, how much time and effort do you put into that 70 pound job when already you've just traveled a long distance and you've spent maybe an hour, two, three hours on site? Realistically, um, you're not going to get that quality of person to do that type of job for that amount of money. And realistically, these companies are not going to be able to pay like the smaller companies, like a little woodworking shop or welding shop, things like that. They're not going to pay that amount of money. I think there's a lot of things we can do. We can get some sort of collection of data and standardised stations. We talk about these type testings, which you know, they're great in a factory environment where you've got low flows, but then what about when it's put into use? Is that not something where occupational hygienists can start to work together and collect some of that data to put into a database? So maybe um, the type of unit, so we're talking about a Kemper, you know, portable unit, an Edelman portable unit. We've done some sampling. It was used in this distance. Start to collect some data and collate it and say, well, actually, we've done our sampling and we're getting these levels and start to see, well, actually, yeah, we can start to feel a bit safe that we're, we're doing these. We're based them on Fletcher's nomogram and we're seeing that the data coming back as we've collected a lot of data is showing that we're getting good control. Um, because you're not going to go and test one of those portable units and pay an absolute fortune for sampling every single time. These little shops are never going to pay for massive amounts of money for the for these tests. It's it's unrealistic to expect, and it's unrealistic to expect every single person going out doing these tests to be good engineers mechanically, electrically, knowing their occupational hygiene, knowing the cost, knowing the regulations. It's not ever going to happen. I disagree. But it, it should. What can we do? We may be able to move in that direction, but that's not going to happen quickly. See, this the, is the problem, Catherine. We're, we're kind of trying to say, right, well, that's where we should be and not looking at, well, actually, that's where we are now. And these are the steps that we need to take to get there. Um, the, there are too many engineers out there. And if if the whole responsibility of that test engineer is to prove control, I don't know how you make that work because to me, those visual tests, I don't think they work. Just from my experience, doing a smoke test, comparing that against welding fume, they don't act in air in exactly the same way. Um, doing visuals with a dust lamp, I can see particles. When I've got the light shining through the window, I can see dust in the room where I'm sat. And if you look at even just basic dust levels, four milligrams in a meter cubed of air. Do you know, does anybody know what that looks like? Yeah. Can, can you confirm it? That might be something that you visually know how to see four milligrams, 10 milligrams. But all of those testers out there, if they see a tiny bit of dust, which you can you can see that in, in the air in the room that you're sat in. <coughs> so how do you know the difference between, well, that's kind of normal background levels and that's four milligrams of my contaminant. 
it's kind of to me it's not a number it's not going to make me feel safe if i start to see dust floating around in the air then how, how do i pass the how do i pass that hood and again it comes down to the risk assessments if the LEV testers are not getting all the information off the customer how can they pass or fail a system i think there's a big issue with putting the onus on an LEV tester in terms of saying whether something's controlling there's a lot of things there's benchmarking um a tester yeah i i think it would be reasonable to expect testers to learn how to benchmark a hood and to be able to say well actually it's not the best benchmark so or it's not the right benchmark for the process but it may be used with other controls again goes back to the risk assessment there's are the flows meeting the guidance flows in hsg258 it's either yes or no some might be meeting but not controlling some might be lower but actually the control you don't know they're just numbers like adrian says but we can record those numbers a tester can record those numbers there's your visual assessments where you can say well i've used a dust lamp or i've used smoke testing and visually i have not seen a problem i don't think i could visually do an assessment and say yes you've got control i can just say no i haven't seen a problem i'm not seeing any indications of anything moving out of the hood or away from the hood however i can't confirm there's no dust in that breathing zone without a number um the element of control is the big sticking point and we're expecting lev testers to go into places in the current situation where it's a woodworking machine there's woodworking dust scattered all around quite often it's from a chop saw that they're using without an LEV on it so yeah um do, do we keep failing systems and then that company's kind of like oh well my system's failed that's the problem you know th there's too many gray areas and we're putting the onus of an LEV tester who's getting a snapshot of information and not always given a risk assessment to say is there control for that worker in their breathing zone and I, I I think we need to try to look at how realistically can we, um, I think in terms of commissioning and supplying systems, we still have that big loophole where the suppliers, um, there's a loophole that maybe not, maybe they're not commissioning the system. <coughs> and and it's, it's that gray, those gray areas that we need to look at. Do we need to make it where somebody who supplies a system has to then prove it in use and prove control. In which case an LEV tester then has that benchmark. They don't even need to worry about how good their occupational hygiene is because in that ideal world, yeah, we, we've got that working, but the world that we're in at the moment, how, what percentage of systems are properly commissioned with sampling data, with, um, with enough information for you to go in as a snapshot to say, yeah, they've, they've got control there. I'm quite happy to put my name against. Yes, you've got control with no. You've not got the information. You can't do that. You can't expect LEV testers to walk in, test these systems and say, yes, this person's got control. In in the in the current situation that we're in, we need to find a way. How do we manage that? And I, and I think there's a lot of things that an LEV tester can do. But I think putting that onus of does it control without them doing sampling or quantitative or having good commissioning data to start with. 
things are not going to move forward unless we do something, unless we think about how do we do something different to make this work. That's my opinion anyway. <laughs> I don't know what others think, but I just think we, we can't keep expecting someone to say, yes, you've got control without them having risk assessments, without them having quantitative numbers. I think no. on the air sampling aspect, Catherine, I think obviously it brings in the what Dean was asking about on the, the um, LinkedIn group for the LEV Central was the, the recirculating air units and who's actually taking air measurements for those. How are you taking them? Where are you taking them? How often are you taking them? There's another grey area. Do you fail it? You know, I know some some firms are failing the portable camper type units because there's no air sampling. Do you pass them and say, well, caveat it out, you need air sampling to prove this? So there you've got, again, a pass or fail, two different companies, two completely different outcomes, one upsetting the client potentially. Um, yeah, what's the thoughts on that for everyone? I tend to pass the recommendations and put it as a recommendation. And obviously, they don't continue to do that or don't do that at any point by the next visit. Then you, you're then more inclined to say you could fail the system until it's proven that it's working correctly and isn't passing any of the contaminants back into the workplace. And that's the, in my opinion, is the best bet, like you mentioned before, Mark, about staying and um, working with you, your customers rather than working against them, I suppose, and just saying, you're doing this wrong and this is how this is what you need to do you're working with them to make it right so i i have an issue with passing things with recommendations um that through my experience people don't follow through the recommendations or they might do it the day before you turn up on the next test and in which time potentially you've exposed someone to a carcinogen for a whole year um if it's a guard on a machine and the guard is hanging off they will stop you using that machine until it's put right. So why is LEV any different? If, if you fail the system, it doesn't mean they've got to stop using it. If you fail the system, it doesn't mean you can't help them and talk them through and, and advise them and, and help them to, to make it better. But what it does, it to me, from, from what I've seen, it pulls them up. It makes them look at it and go, what do you mean it's failed? If you fail the system, they usually give it to someone to sort out. Whereas if you pass it, it tends to sit on a shelf until the next visit. That's just my view, my opinion. And you know, it's as Mark said at the beginning, yeah. Mark and I get great. It's passing it with caveats, Adrian, isn't it? It's saying, well, you can continue yeah. to use it with other controls, with RPE. We're giving you a short time frame, which is a say three months is what the typically the HSE would use to get it right. If they get a visit from the HSE and they're not doing anything, they'll get an improvement notice. Then but why not, why not you fail it with those caveats? You can still do all the same work. I don't think personally you should be passing systems um, uh, conditionally. Basically, this system um, controls if the items I've listed below are put into effect and rectified. I don't think you can do that. I think there are, uh, and going back to something that was said earlier, I think it was Adrian might have said it, that um, there's far too many systems currently being passed that I see the reports and they clearly should not be passed. They should not be. We are passing far too many systems. Going back to something again, just while I'm in, um, that um, Hazel said, I would commend you all to go and dig out after this the Health and Safety at Work Act, 
section six. And just look at it. It's the only really detailed part of the Health and Safety Work Act. It's bullet pointed and it's on suppliers, manufacturers, importers, designers. It's the duties on those people. Very specific. It is in two blocks. Each block is mirrored. One block is for articles such as LEV and the other block is for substances. So people who would be supplying substances. Have a look at what it says people who import and supply articles should be doing. So that's all of you who are manufacturers and resellers. It is very clear the information that should be provided. And I think an awful lot of manufacturers and suppliers are breaching that requirement. HSC seem to be taking cases such as I've seen them and taking enforcement action against the duty holders. And that is the people who run the factories. And I did send a, an email to a lady inspector. She took a case and said, why didn't you look at section six? Because the installer had gone completely off rail here. And the designer, and she sent me a letter. She didn't reply by email. She sent me a letter saying the duty holder permitted that system to be used. So it does seem to me that HSE thrust is, is a little bit more towards the workshop owner rather than the supplier of the equipment. But I, I think time will come, section six. Now it's interesting that commissioning is not mentioned in the cost regs or in the approved code of practice. It's not there. You think it's there under section seven, it isn't. Uh, regulation 7. It's actually under the poor regs because LEV is a piece of work equipment it's used at work so the commissioning comes under there so it is there and we know that COSH regs are due for review. Um, Brexit and COVID have both got in the way they haven't even started reviewing they've had a couple of interim meetings it's unlikely to be reviewed and brought out as a discussion document for at least two to three years in my view but the word on the streets is that um, regulation six risk assessments and regulation seven will be fused closer to make it less easy to separate the two and they're talking about bringing commissioning into reg seven so that's the future and i think it's fundamental if you're looking at an lev system in some cases I don't think you can pass it or fail it without sight of the risk assessment, because what was it there for? What was its purpose? Now on simple systems, we can probably get round that, but a lot of the systems we do are much more complex. And I think without a risk assessment, here's an idea. We, we, we tend to say systems are satisfactory or unsatisfactory. Maybe we need to say not determined because there's some information that's missing. We can't determine if it's satisfactory or unsatisfactory. Should we be saying not determined? Okay. We, we sure. tend to say unable to confirm control um, and um, to be honest, quite rarely pass systems these days. If we put any recommendations in that's anything to do with control, we don't pass it. But I do find that the, the, the skill that I think you need most in this job is to be good with words because I'm continually trying to look at how we um, put forward the information to the client to give them the information that <clears throat> they need to keep <clears throat> on the right side of health and safety and also to protect ourselves. I think it is it's, it's client relationships it has to be it has to be working with your clients 
if there's a will from them to get it right, then yeah, you have to give them a little bit of slack, I think, and, and time to get things right. I think the heavy-handed approach, for us, that doesn't work. We, we prefer to take a slightly softer, and yes, we're taking on a little bit of liability with that, I think, but it's back to wording. I think in reports, we cover ourselves. We give the client time to get it right in a reasonable time frame, but not putting them at risk or operators at risk or others at risk. Um, it's back to giving them a plan and getting an action plan in place that works for them as a client. It has to. Otherwise, you just end up, you'll end up with no clients. I think for me, if you take the hardline approach all the time, um, yes, there's a time and a place for that if the client clearly isn't listening and doesn't have the will. Um, but the majority of the time for the clients we've got, it's, it's working with them, as you say, and just make sure you're phrasing it right so that they can make the improvements they need in the time frame that, that's suitable. Just going back to the, uh, the uh, monitoring on the mobile systems and obviously passing or failing or passing the recommendations, um, how would you go about testing for the, the gases that get through on the mobile systems? Because if you're doing your uh, monitoring for the metal constituents to see if anything's getting through, there's the gases that come into it. So are you ever going to pass the system that's a mobile system? I would therefore say every mobile system is going to fail if they're doing welding fume, because that's a bit of a, a really great area for me. It's back, back to risk assessment, isn't it? It's, it's what, what have they got? What are they doing? Is there a risk of that gas coming off? And have you measured it? Is there any data to back up? If there's no data, then it's back to what we were saying before. You can't determine that unit. You can't. It'll either go down as it not determined. You need additional information or not satisfactory because <coughs> for ozone or whatever it may be that's, that's coming off. You've <coughs> the usage. I mean, I'm seeing more and more mobile units being used full time instead of um, fully installed systems, um, which if you're doing that, then there's more chance of gases building up in the working environment. I thought I read years ago that mobile and portable units should only be used for occasional works for things like repairs and maintenance. But for the life of me, I can't find that document since. I don't know if anyone else has seen it or come across it. But I, I, I do agree. I think the portable mobile units and even the fixed systems for welding, um, you see them installed inside factories with filters, which are good for the particulate element, but do absolutely nothing for the gases and they just recirculate them. And when you speak to these companies, as I found out with one recently, they have no idea either. So um, I, I think you just got to recommend air monitoring. But as Mark says, it all go, everything goes back to the risk assessment. And we should be asking to see the risk assessment before we start the report, before we start the test. And if people can't provide it, say so in your report. Say there's no evidence of the risk assessment in the, in the report. You've got to flag it. You've got to raise it with the customers. Otherwise, they don't know and they won't do anything about it. But Adrian, it, it can become slightly problematic when you have mobile units. For instance, if you was to do an air monitoring on, on say, a device in a small workshop, and it failed, you could move that same mobile device out into a larger workshop, do some air monitoring, you may find that the values you get in the larger workshop are not as high. So you could have failed the small unit, sorry, you could have failed the unit in a small room, move it to a larger room and it's okay. So it's the fact that these devices are portable that adds a different dimension to how the test has to be structured. And it isn't no, always, I don't think, it's always a black and white decision. No, it goes back to what I said at the very beginning. We test what we see in front of us. You, you know, you, you can't just go in and say, I'm going to test 
you know that is it black and white you have to be more more um what's the right word open-minded about it and what they're doing and how they're doing it and yeah using the right location right circumstances it could be fine using the wrong location wrong circumstances it may not work on your reports and i presume you guys will do it you put the location of the system you're testing and, and that's the reason why you put it is because it has a bearing on, on the results and another element to add to that is i think we should be trying to determine an estimate of the arc time because you can have a little workshop where the arc time is two minutes in an eight hour period and another workshop the arc time is six hours in an eight hour period now how would we feel about a recirculating system in situation a and situation b and then you look at these things that they which i hate which they plug on to heavy goods vehicle exhaust discharges from the exhaust tailpipe these portable recycling filters and if you read the instructions on those they very clearly say um not more than so many minutes usage per day and you know engine size and so on but those re those welding filter carts and, and come in various guises you know would we be expecting them the manufacturers to say that there is a you know a limit on arc time that this should be used for the other thing to watch out for with all welding fumes incidentally it's usually the particulate that is the issue i can i can understand that co and ozone and so on can be an issue but it's usually the manganese the nickel the chrome the iron fume um, these are the ones, particularly manganese. People say, oh, it, you all know, of course, that um, although welding fume has been ascribed as causing an increase in cancer, it is not a carcinogen by definition. Um, it cannot meet the CARC definition in, um, uh, in the EH40, but the individual components within it can. So manganese is the one apparently that is regularly breached because it has a very low um, workplace exposure limit and can cause Parkinsonism. Um, so the link is there. Um, and you might say, well, there's no, man no manganese in my steel, but there isn't the consumables and that's where we go over. Uh, and I've got great concern that some of these materials themselves may not be controlled and passed through filtration systems. Anyway, I've lost my train of thought now completely. So I'll shut up. I'd just like to go back to a couple of points. I'm forgetting both of them now. Something Bill said, uh, but also something Mark said um, when we're talking about passing and failing systems, and we were saying um, you shouldn't be passing systems with conditionals, and that that's kind of where it comes into that whole control thing again. Because I've had a scenario um, we've, we've said you fail a system rather than, rather than giving it, um, otherwise they won't do anything about the issues. Now, I've had a particular instance, and I don't know whether this is all a lead up to what happened, but I do know that I tested a sack tipping hood, and the sack tipping hood was great. It was brilliant. It, you know, the flows on it were great when they tipped the bag. 
but they were taking the bags out and they had secondary contamination. And in that instance, I can't remember exactly, but I've got a feeling I've either failed it or I've said, I can't pass it, you've got secondary contamination. Quite possibly I'd failed it. Now I went back to that site the following year, they've got a brand new tipping hood put in with a hood next to it, which still didn't solve the problem because they still had to take the bags out of this hood and put them into the one next to it. Um, so still they didn't control the secondary contamination, but they'd spent a fortune on a brand new system, not realising that that tipping hood did the tipping absolutely fine. The only thing they had to do is put in additional controls for the secondary. And it, again, it's those areas where where you have got things wrong and do you fail the system just to make them do something about it? Um, if they're not understanding you saying, well, I'm unable to confirm control because you've got secondary contaminations. I think in most cases to get around the issues that we've got, I think the only thing a lot of us can do is on these systems say we're unable to confirm. How can you pass a system based on the fact that you've got to say it's controlling if you've not got reference to a risk assessment on what other additional controls to have now with a lot of work with the customer and a lot of understanding and getting those risk assessments and and doing a lot more intense work we can maybe get to those decisions again it's something that ideally is done at commissioning and we're just testing against commissioning but we don't have that in the real world and we're not going to get these testers out there and the amount of LED systems that need properly commissioning that are not properly commissioned at the moment. People doing LEV testing work are not at the level to do that, that commissioning and to be able to work with the customers and to make it worthwhile um, money-wise to be able to go out and put that amount of effort in for maybe a £70 system or a £150 system even. It's, it's not... Um, sort of realistic and we're still trying to fit that doing a test and proving control without the risk assessments without the cost data and the amount of systems I've seen well over a thousand systems I would say 98% of them would have to be unable to confirm. Is there scope for looking at the way in which we report uh, I think Bill made the point far more eloquently than I was trying to earlier about the, the envelope of controls. But you know, I always, the, the pass or fail always sits very, very uneasily with me. And where the LEV report is meant to be an assessment if you read the guidance of the, the process and the controls and to try and put more onus back onto the client itself in which we say, yes, as far as we can see, that within the suite of controls, the LEV report is doing a job, but it's putting more onus back onto the customer, I suppose, back on about their, their cost assessment and risk assessment. Um, because of this, the whole kind of green and red, you know, traffic light system of, of purely pass, you know, in, in some way that's, if, as soon as they get a pass, that's them for the year. But having a report in which saying, yes, the system itself is fine, but you still need to, it's about trying to give them a, a yearly kick up the backside, at least to say that, you know, even, even if your LEV system is doing, you should be reviewing. It's going back into, I suppose, the, the regular review of their, their risk assessment. See, do you not think, though, Kenneth, it's, it's there ultimately to control a hazardous substance to a certain level? 
either it's doing it or it's not. Everything else, you know, is built around that. You have to make a decision for the client, you know, be it welding fume, wood dust, flower dust, whatever it is. It's there to, to bring it down to a satisfactory level that is in accordance with their risk assessment. Yes, absolutely. I think it goes back to the two. The point is, you know, a system can still be, you know, and if you look at, a, say, a wood dust system or something like that, like a, something like a band resaw, you know, you can, you can, if somebody's using that wearing RPE, there's some LEV can only get down to a, a reasonable level, you know, in the process and they need additional points. And it's the same, you know, the, the flip side of that as well. I just, it's, it's the, the pass or the fail sits quite uncomfortably with me sometimes when you're, you're trying to give a, the, the customer a report, but it's all they look at is the, the pass or the fail. And Which leads you know, the, kind of, the recommendations kind of, for how they how they you know continually improve their controls, I think, is, is sometimes lost. As an industry, are we missing the point here somewhat? We're, we're there looking at one element of the control um, package in the LEV. Well, really, what the customer needs and what they require is some sort, someone to check that they have control of the hazardous substance. And that could be a, a number of things to provide control, whether it be RPE, LEV, general ventilation, good working practice, user training. Should we not be developing the role of the LEV assessor um, into something, I don't know, control assessor or hazardous substance or environment control assessor? But does this not go back to the commissioning, Adrian, to say, right, well, this this LEV unit yeah. is working in conjunction with these other control measures? Mark, it goes back further than that. It goes back to design. Back to, yeah, it goes back that's to back to caveat the LEV report, though, isn't it? Saying, it goes back to risk assessment. But how often do you get a risk assessment from customers? You know, good blue chip customers don't want to have risk assessments. Um, then you so, can't pass a system. You, you, you know, that would definitely be a... If there's no risk assessment, they haven't identified the hazardous sub 